The coronavirus pandemic has created political uncertainty in more ways than one. The choice between health and exercising your right to vote is very real in this election year. As court battles and partisan divide continue to shape how November 3rd will unfold, primaries, just like last week in New York, have served as a test run. The results? Unrevealing at best. In an era that showcases the harshest of political divides, the right to vote remains one of the most sacred forms of democracy. How that very right looks and is perceived come November is crucial. The debate of a nationwide mail-in election is taking shape, while fears of voter fraud have reigned in from levels as high as the White House. Monica McDermott is a professor of political science at Fordham University and an election night polling analyst at CBS News. She also runs the master's program in elections and campaign management. Campaigns and election analysis have occupied a greater part of her life. This morning, she sheds light on the debate and breaks down the current state of elections. I'm Emmanuel Barbari, and this is Fordham Conversations, a show that taps into the Fordham University community to discuss and uncover issues that impact our world. Joined by Professor Monica McDermott. Monica, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to start with the current situation, the COVID-19 pandemic. You've been involved with campaigns for a long time. How has that affected your responsibilities? Well, um, it's affected them a lot, actually, as it's affected life in general for everyone in a very major way. It's really just created a whole new landscape for politics and elections and what we have coming up this year in terms of the presidential election. So it's kind of upended just everything and the way we have done things before and everything we know. You're a professor of political science at Fordham and also the director of the Masters in Election and Campaign Management. Can you go through your day-to-day responsibilities at Fordham? Yeah, so um, as any professor does in any department, I teach um, my share of classes. So I tend to teach classes like political psychology. I teach gender and politics. Um, So mostly upper division classes in political science. And then I also teach in our graduate program, which I also direct, as you said. And um, it's a graduate program that turns out um, people ready to work in campaigns and elections. And so students come to us wanting to learn the skills that are involved in strategic messaging and press releases and polling and all kinds of things and just political behavior in general. And we help them learn all of those things through adjunct professors that we hire who are professional practitioners in these things. And, um, we turn them out into the world and they get great jobs and go on to do really impressive things. You've also been an election night polling analyst for CBS News since 2002. Mm -hmm. What are some of the things you look to accomplish both on election night? Are you working with campaigns or are you just compiling data? Can you give us a little bit of insight into what you do for CBS News? Yeah, what I do for CBS is depending on where they place me in the news organization, um, I'm most of the time analyzing the exit poll data as they come in. So the exit poll organization polls across the country as people are exiting the polls, hence the name exit poll. Mm -hmm. And it asks them a host of questions about how they just voted and why they voted that way. 
And it's up to we analysts to then analyze those data and make sense of them for the news organization, for the talent, for um, the website, for things of that nature, depending, as I said, on where we are at the time in the news organization. And so I've worked um, for the web. I've worked for the evening news desk. I've worked just about in every place possible at CBS News analyzing these things, sometimes on live radio. Um, but it's it's really exciting. It's a fun job. From your experience, how do the exit polls line up with how people actually voted? Or are there a lot of inconsistencies? Well, the exit polls have had problems in the past. We all know that. The infamous 2000 election, um, at which I was at which time I was actually working for CBS News full time. I was um, the manager of surveys for them then, which is why I still work for them now. But um, in general, they're very accurate. They give you a sense of exactly what's going on out there. They're the only real poll we have of real voters because any other polling model is just estimating who's going to turn out. And so prior to elections, all polling models are going to be a little bit wrong on election day. And so the exit polls are what gives you actual voters and how they're actually thinking as they turn out to vote. In 2016, there seemed to be a lot of studies after the election of how the results changed from polls leading up to election day and then what ultimately transpired. From what you've seen, What's led to all the skepticism and how can that skepticism kind of be erased and people to get back on looking at polls and valuing them the same way again? Well, there are two things that I think people misunderstand about polls, and I don't think it's the public's fault. I think it's largely the media and pollsters themselves who are to blame for this. And one thing is that election polls are only good at the point at which they're taken. So if you take a poll a week out from the election, it's only going to reflect attitudes that week or that day that you've taken the poll. So it's not going to project into the future necessarily. So polls are shots um, in time. They're just a portrait in time and they can't go beyond that. They're very timely. Anything can make public opinion change, as we've seen with COVID-19, a dramatic one. Um, But the other thing that people don't understand is that the national election polls, which were done that year, all of the national polls were actually correct. They had Hillary Clinton up by two points, most of them. And that's, she actually won the popular vote. So the thing that people don't understand is that that national vote is what is, reflects the popular vote. And we're not taking state by state electoral college polls So we aren't taking polls in every state, so we can't estimate what the Electoral College is actually actually going to be. And so that's another point of confusion, I think, for people and why they think the polls did so poorly in 2016, because they say, well, the polls said Hillary Clinton was going to win, but clearly she didn't. So the polls were wrong. When the polls were actually right, it's just that they were miscommunicated, I think, to the public. And that's something that we as pollsters and we in the media need to do a better job of. So when you look at the polls you're conducting right now and the pandemic is a massive indicator of whether Mm -hmm. people will vote, could still be a factor come November. Is that something that's being taken into mind? Okay, could the results be different in November, just given that 
you don't know whether these people will turn out to vote. Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's still so early, even in a normal election cycle, as if there is such a thing, but in a more normal election cycle than this one, it would still be very early in the race. And any poll that comes out and says, you know, Biden versus Trump at this point in time is just, again, at this point in time, this is where people's preferences are. But so much is still remaining that could happen between now and election time. And this year, with COVID-19, we have no idea what's going to happen. And if anyone out there says they have an idea what's going to happen and they're actually correct, then they deserve to make a lot of money. Because at this point, I think most pollsters and most pundits are just scratching their heads saying, we got to wait to see what happens because it's just a new normal. This may seem like a more narrow-minded question, but will this election be a referendum on the handling of COVID-19 or will other factors be considered just as evenly? Well, we're in a time, you have to view the COVID-19 pandemic, at least politically speaking, in terms of American politics in a larger sense, which is that we're in a time of such polarized opinion in America, where Democrats are completely on one side and Republicans are so completely on the other side and the sides just don't agree at all. So Trump is maintaining his base of support that he's had since he was elected, regardless of what's going on with COVID-19. His numbers, his approval numbers have been amazingly steady throughout this pandemic. They went they went up a little bit in the early going of it, but they've settled back down to where they had been, which is like mid-40s approval for him. So he still got his base of support because of this partisan divide in our country. What really depends in terms of the election is how independents are going to vote. And that's the sliver of the American populace that could potentially be influenced by what's going on with the handling of COVID-19. But again, it remains to be seen. It could just be that independents who lean lean towards the Democrats just vote with the Democrats and those who lean towards Republicans just vote with the Republicans. And it's sort of a wash as we see in many elections. So we don't really know how people are going to react to the handling of this. Many people would just shoot this down, but it's been raised. Can the November election even be postponed? That is a very good question. Um, it, <laughs> as as I understand it, um, it would take an act of Congress to do so. But um, there are people who are far more expert in that than I am. So I'll leave it to the legal analysts to get into all of the details on that. But um it's as I understand it, it is possible, but it's highly, highly unlikely. Given that so many primaries have continued to take place and people have had to choose between their health and their right to vote, does that set a dangerous precedent moving forward into the November election? Anything could happen between now and then. It's um, it, it remains to be seen. I, I I can't even begin to fathom what might happen because so much is so different in our world right now that we just, we have no idea. In the recent poll that you were part of conducting out of Fordham University, the support for all mail balloting was indicative in 53% of the results moving to all mail, 
and 69% of them on the Democratic side, 31% on the Republican side. Why do you think there's so much of a partisan divide on that very topic? That is, um, that's actually a really easy answer because (laughs) um, Democrats believe and Republicans believe as well, and Trump has actually said this out loud, that the more people that vote, the better Democrats do. And changing to all-male balloting usually ups the turnout rate. And so the fear is, and this is what Trump stated flat out, was that if you switch to all-male balloting, you'll never have another Republican elected again. That was, it's not a direct quote, but that was pretty much what he said. And um, that's the belief out there. There are scholars who have shown that that's not necessarily true. That that's but it is conventional wisdom. And so that tends to be the way people look at it. And so, of course, Democrats say, yes, the more the merrier. Let's have that kind of participation. And Republicans come down on the side of all male all male balloting, excuse me, could lead to more fraud. And they're more afraid of fraud, whereas Democrats are more afraid of low turnout and disenfranchisement. And so those are the two sides that are fighting each other in this battle. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Emmanuel Berbere talking with Fordham University political science professor and CBS News election night polling analyst Monica McDermott about voting rights and the current state of elections. For those who wouldn't necessarily understand it, is there a difference between no excuse absentee balloting and a full nationwide mail-in election? Um, that's a good question. Um, there is because in an, an absentee balloting, excuse me, you have to request your ballot. So even if it's no excuse absentee balloting, you still have to get your, your absentee ballot. And you still have the option in that case of voting in person. If you switch over to all mail balloting, which is what Oregon does, for example, then it's you can drop your mail ballot off at the election site but you don't have the option of going in and voting in person at any election site. You actually automatically get your ballot in the mail and you it's up to you to either mail it in or to drop it off. So that's why it makes turnout so much higher is because it's a lot easier. But if you switched over to just no excuse absentee balloting, you would still have the public um, polling sites open and people could still go in and vote in person if they wanted to. From your perspective, would this be more of a state or a federal issue? So if Congress were to approve funding for mail-in balloting, would it be nationwide or would it be on the states to then make it possible? It's on the states because it is the secretaries of state that establish these rules. So if a state wanted to buck a national trend and not do it, I don't believe that Congress has any power to force it to do so. And I don't believe that that Congress would force it to do so. If there wasn't a pandemic that could hamper the ability to vote, in your mind, what would be the biggest voting obstacles that still exist today and could lead to some sort of suppression, even if there wasn't a pandemic factored in? Well, we've seen in the past um, couple of years, in the past couple of elections, we've seen some attempts at voter suppression that had nothing to do with the pandemic or anything like that, where We've seen polling places closed in or at least restricted or the number of them cut down in high minority population areas, which is 
basically an attempt to squash the minority turnout. And that's that's what it is. And it's been done by Republican governors. And that's unfortunate. And the reason they do it, they say, is because of fraud. And they may actually believe that. But what it does end up doing is suppressing Democratic votes, regardless of what the motive of it is. So even if you give them the benefit of the doubt that they're doing it for good reason, it still has that ultimate effect. So yes, there are ways that secretaries of state and governors of states can suppress voter turnout in various areas that they may choose. Democrats could do it just as easily as Republicans do it. Um, It would just be different kinds of areas that they would choose. It seems the system so divided where, depending on the state and how the court structure is in that state, that could determine which parts of the population turn out to vote. Am I right in saying that the court makeup of the state, the governor of the state, plays a huge role in how things could look on Election Day? Absolutely. It absolutely does. The partisan makeup, the state legislature... All of it, yes. So if you've got a red state that is solidly red, they're going to have one way of going about doing the election. If you've got a state that's reliably blue, they're going to have another way of going about it. Taking the Wisconsin primary, for example, there were several reports of people contracting the virus after they went to a polling station and casted their vote. But the turnout wasn't that far off from what you'd expect. Do you think the virus could really hamper the voter, would you expect turnout to be around the same? Well, Wisconsin was an, an interesting early test case because one of the things it did with, it, there was so much controversy surrounding whether or not they were going to allow a mail-in ballot and, you know, no no excuse absentee balloting, which they ended up not doing because um, the courts decided not to allow that to happen. It, it And and so what you had were what we think happened, um, although there wasn't an exit poll in the state, so we don't actually know from voters themselves. But what we think happened was that people reacted to that and the Democratic turnout was higher because people were angered by the fact that they felt that the vote was being suppressed and that it wasn't fair. And that's why you saw Democrats winning when you wouldn't have necessarily expected them to win in areas where they wouldn't normally. And so, you know, there was that state court race that is sort of infamous at this point. So, yeah, I think you could have, depending on the type of system that's in place, you could have a backlash in November on either side against the way the state decides to run the election. With early voting options varying per state, is it possible to get the same turnout without expanded mail-in voting? Because you mentioned, as we saw in Wisconsin, people just could be angered and get out to vote anyway. Yeah, I think you absolutely could. I think that people might feel, I I think that COVID-19 in some ways is bringing people together, um, even while it's ironically, we're socially distanced. Um, I think it's bringing people together and I think it is giving us a sense of shared community. And I think that people might feel, and I I don't have any evidence of this at this point, but it would be something interesting to look into. But I think that people might actually feel that it is their duty as well as their right to go out and express their voice at that point, even if there is 
uh, personal danger in it. How much do you think the campaigns will be impacted due to the fact that there's the ongoing debate of whether rallies can be held or safe to be held? You don't see the candidates as much in a climate like this. From your campaign experience, how much will it be impacted? That's a very likely possibility. Um, I think Trump, you're going to see a lot of just because he is the sitting president. So in that way, he's advantaged by what's going on. Um, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean, he's he's got command of news, the news cycle. He is the president. That's what presidents do. Sitting presidents have a Rose Garden strategy that gives them attention in the news media. Um, whereas Joe Biden is stuck in a basement and not yeah. able to generate the same kind of coverage that Trump does. He's trying, but he's not achieving it. And so he might generate some coverage once he announces his vice presidential pick um, and the conventions, if they're allowed to happen, that will give a bump to each candidate. But at this point, yeah, at least Joe Biden, the challenger, is largely invisible. And whether that changes depends on how much the rules are relaxed and how things go forward. Speaking of conventions, there was a story out in the New York Times questioning whether they're necessary in this climate and really necessary overall, whether it's just an old political format. Do you think this climate will force the parties to reevaluate how they structure the campaign season and conventions? I think in this current environment, they should self-assess. And I think there is the question of whether they're necessary. I, in, in modern day and time, since we've gone over to popular election of the nominee rather than the old backroom cigar smoking, you know, old yeah. guys picking the candidate, um, we've gotten away from that. And so the convention really is more for pomp and circumstance these days than it is for any real purpose. Um, you know, you hammer out the party platform, but no one really pays attention to the party platform anyway, to be frank. And so it, um, yeah, I think that the parties should question it. But I also think that if one party goes ahead with theirs, the other party is pretty much going to have to, out of political necessity, go ahead with theirs as well. Is the bump in polling lasting enough where, like you just alluded to, one party would feel they had to match that level of coverage if one party held their convention? It doesn't tend to be a long-lasting bump, but um, it does sort of... There are effects that linger. There sometimes are standout speeches by... Um, future candidates or past candidates or political office holders that really can ignite the party faithful and get them excited about things. And that's where it actually matters. So not necessarily in winning over independent voters who probably don't watch conventions anyway, but at least in getting the party faithful excited about their nominee. And that might be a slightly longer lasting effect that turns people out come November. Before we wrap up, you've been involved in several publications, but you actually have a book out, Masculinity, Femininity, and American Political Behavior. Can you walk us through what you cover in the book for those who may not know? Sure. Um, that was a project I did. Um, it actually came about, um, not to go into too much history here, but it actually came about from teaching my gender in American politics class because the first semester I taught it, 
we um, had the students take what is a personality assessment of getting at whether they have mostly masculine traits or mostly feminine traits. And one of the things we found in that class was that pretty much everyone in the class, and they were all very liberal, I will say, just because you have to figure the self-selection bias that goes into taking a gender in American politics class, but they were all very liberal and all had very strongly, whether male or female, very strong feminine traits. And it made me think, hmm, there's something there because the Democrats, of course, their party platforms tend to be far more, or excuse me, far more feminine than masculine because they care about things like health care and child care and social welfare, whereas the Republican Party plank is much more masculine. They care about defense and foreign policy and getting tough on you know welfare and things like that. And so I actually did a survey, a lengthy survey, to test whether or not people who have more de- more feminine than masculine traits tend to vote more for a Democratic candidate, and whether or not people who have more masculine than feminine traits, excuse me, I'm stumbling over myself, <laughs> tend to vote more for the Republicans. And that's actually what I found. I also found that people with more masculine traits were more likely to be involved politically and to pay attention to politics because, of course, politics is this kind of blood sport rather than so people who are sort of more into compassion and community and things like that don't go for politics in the same way as people who are more dominant and aggressive and have that kind of personality profile. So it was a fun examination into how these aspects of our personalities help determine our politics. That's Professor Monica McDermott of Fordham University here on Fordham Conversations. Really great insight. Appreciate you coming on again. And thanks for uncovering all these very pressing questions during this election year. Thank you, Emmanuel. It was great being here. So many interesting points raised by Monica McDermott. I would like to thank her and the Fordham University Political Science Department for the time. Should be very interesting to follow the election year as it continues to take shape. If you missed any parts of the interview, be sure to visit WFUV.org for the full conversation. For WFUV's Fordham Conversations, this is Emmanuel Barbari.